The deep blue water of the Nile River carves its way through the barren desert wastelands. As far as the eye can see, nothing grows except on its banks. And from ancient civilizations and up to now, people have placed their hope in the precious water of the Nile. Hope that they can put their trust in for fertility, for growth, and for civilization as far as we know it. This single artery that starts as far south as South Sudan, going all the way through Egypt until it hits the Mediterranean Sea, this water, this living water, this provision brings life to an otherwise barren wasteland. Every year in its season, ancient Egyptians would pray to their gods, Apis, Isis, Osiris, the great gods of the Nile, that they would bring another season of what they called inundation. And you just have to think like an Egyptian for a moment. They didn't know where this water was coming from. They would just pray to their gods, and seemingly, out of nowhere, the river Nile would begin to bloat and to increase in capacity. And in its season, it would pour over the sides and little fingers would spread across the valley, fingers of water bringing forth nourishment and also with it precious silt to further fertilize this otherwise barren land. And this single feature is what brings life to this barren land, which is now and was then in the ancient world the breadbasket of the ancient world, none more prosperous, none more powerful. And this is in a region in which it hardly ever rains. Just think about this. It only rains for 10, maybe 15 days per year or two inches per year on average. That's last Thursday for us. And so here they are, praying to their gods, bring forth rain! And the rain comes, and they rejoice again. And if you would go there today, you would see still that the most fertile land is in the land of Cairo, which 3,500 years ago was the land of Goshen. Take note of that. That word's going to come up again, the land of Goshen. And so the camera, it takes you there. There you see these tiny little homes, a little bit more extravagant than a hut that has been made out of clay and mud, put together, laid out in the sun to bake, and then put together so that they can build these little homes. They're all built, as far as the eye can see, hundreds upon hundreds, thousands upon thousands of people. And on this night, you look out across the Nile River as the sun is starting to set, there's a gentle northwest breeze that is carrying the smoke of the evening fires. And from this, we hear a voiceover. Just listen. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And the story of Exodus begins. These seven verses set the stage for what I believe to be the most famous story of redemption, the most famous story of love and of sacrifice that the world has ever seen. And so today we are starting in day one of our new series on the book of Exodus. But before we get too far, I think we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. We have to ask ourselves questions like, what's going on during this time period? Why is it so important for us to understand? Why did God bring the people of Israel here? This tiny little group of 70, which bloats into a people group of a million, and before they leave Egypt, two million. And why, oh why, of all places, did God bring them to Egypt as an incubator, a greenhouse, before they enter into the land of promise? As many of you know, the book of Exodus is the second book in your Bible. It's also the second book of what we call the Pentateuch. Penta means five, tuk means book. It's in reference to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so what we see from this is these five books are sort of supposed to be viewed as five chapters of the same book. And you see this further when you read the book of Exodus in Hebrew. It starts with the English equivalent of the word and. So the way that you can read it is like this. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. So I want to catch you up. Put on your seatbelt. We're going to take the next, I don't know, three, four hours to go through the entire book of Genesis. So if you got a turkey, it's going to burn. Don't worry about it. We're going through the book of Exodus. If you'd like to join me, I'm going to get to Genesis chapter 15 in just a second. But let's set the stage for what we're going to see in the book of Exodus. The story behind the story. Page one of the Bible says that our earth, our solar system, indeed our universe was created by a big thundering voice. Now, scientists, they've been following this thundering voice, wondering how is it possible that something can be created out of nothing, and not just something, but the intricacies of human life as we know it? How is it possible that we could see intelligent design and beauty and grandeur throughout the entire known world, especially here on earth? And so here's what we see. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. The Hebrew word for God is the word Elohim. Say Elohim. So in the beginning, Elohim God, he created, that's the Hebrew word barah, say barah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep and the spirit. Spirit of God hovered over the waters. This word spirit is the word ruach. And so we see here from the first two verses, we have a creator God who's also some sort of spirit. And then in verse three, it said, and God spoke and there was. 
So already in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1, we see a God who is a creator, who is also some sort of spirit, and who is also some sort of living word. This holy trinity of persons, a community that is so perfectly unified, it is three and yet one. And God spoke, verse 3, and there was. So what do we see? We see in these three verses that this three and yet one God, three and yet one God, when he speaks, creation comes into existence. It wasn't as much of a big bang as it was a big thundering voice, an unmade maker, a perfect creator who when he speaks, creation listens with such intelligent design that if anything changed from Earth's distance from the sun or our distance from the moon or our gravitational pull or the amount of oxygen or nitrogen that we have in our solar system, any minor change to one of a million different variables, Earth would not be able to sustain life as we know it. And yet look around. All y'all are here. And we see this incredible God creates something out of nothing. See, in ancient civilizations like in Egypt 3,500 years ago, they weren't asking questions like, do you believe in God? The question that they would ask is, which God do you serve? Which God is worthy of your worship? What God do you ascribe to and would you recommend for me to worship too? Because they would look around at their creation, all that has been made, and they would see that creation screams out, Creator, this God is good. And all of you are a little bit nervous because I'm still at Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. So here's what we see on page 2. The intention of this God is that all of creation would join together with him, that we would enjoy God, that God would enjoy us, and that we would help create and cultivate all that God has made good, that we would be in a right relationship with God, that we would walk with him in the cool of the day, that we would be in good relationship with each other and with all of creation. But by page three, we see that everything goes wrong. That's what happens when you add human beings into the mix. And we see that all of creation since page three has been groaning like a woman in childbirth, waiting for all things to be made new. And it causes us to ask questions even today, like why would God allow evil and suffering and war and rumors of wars and the sword and dying and death, why would God allow evil and suffering to occur? And we were reminded of that again this week, weren't we? This is, this is the question that I get asked the most as a pastor. Why does God allow evil things to happen? Where was God six and a half months ago during the flood? Where was God last week in Ontario? Where was God when Arnie and Joanne were taken too soon? Where was God when 19 kids And two teachers were senselessly taken. We look at all of this and we know that it's wrong. It's wrong. And so we look to God and we say, why? How? In what way? But page two has already told us. See, when God created us, he gave us the capacity to love. And contrary to popular opinion, love is not a feeling, it's a choice. 
God has given us a free choice to love in the same way that he has loved us, to create and to cultivate and to grow and to experience love and to give love in the context of community, to build families and communities. But he has also given us the choice to reject those things, to take all that God has created good and to distort it and to twist it. And it breaks his heart. But we already see right here in chapter 3 that God makes a promise that he will make a way to save us. He will send a savior. He will send a substitute, a very important word in the book of Exodus, a substitute. And if you take the blood of this substitute and you write it on the doorposts of your heart, then the just judgment of God won't fall on you. It will fall on his son. And so may the entire world know for once and for all that if you choose the Son, then you will be set free. That God desires that none shall perish and that all will come to him. And if anyone is going to be separated from God's presence, it will be over his own dead son's body. That is the only way. See, our God is a covenant-keeping God. We see this already at the beginning of the book of Genesis that God wants to work in and through his people to bring about his redemptive plan. But he knows something. He knows the stubbornness of our own hearts. So if he goes to an established nation and he says, I want to work through you, they're going to say, look at us, we're so awesome. And so God seeks to find the most unlikely and dysfunctional person that he can find, a guy named Abe. So he comes along, Abe, and he says, no offense, buddy, But if I can work through you and bring about my redemptive plan, then everyone's going to say, there must be a God. And Abraham's not offended. He says, yep, I'll come. I'll join with you. So he leaves his tribe, his people group, his land behind, and he goes and he follows God. And one night, God takes Abraham out of his tent and he says, look at all the stars in the sky, if indeed you can count them. As numerous as the stars are in the sky, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham says, quit joking with me. I'm 90 years old and I have no kids. I have no prospects. Of course, that's not going to happen. And God said, it will. Abraham says, how can I know this to be true? And now we're all the way up to Genesis chapter 15. Look at this with me. If you have your Bible open, Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That's the promise, Abraham. I will give them a land to call their own, but for more than 400 years, they will be in a different land, in the land of Goshen, but then eventually the land will enslave them. But I will have the victory, and all will know that I am God. And so Abraham, he has a son named Isaac. Isaac means laughter because Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughed at the prospect of having a child at the age of 90. Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob eventually had 12 boys. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you know what the word Israel means? It means to struggle with God. Not to struggle against, to struggle with. 
And what a fitting word that would be over the course of the many generations to come as they continued to struggle with God. And even for us today, because the Apostle Paul says, we Christians are the Israel of God. May that be an encouragement to all of us. God struggles with us as we struggle with him. The second youngest of the 12 brothers was a boy named Joseph. Now Joseph, let's just say he had very low EQ. Um, he would go up to all of his 10 older brothers and he would, he would tell them, hey, I just had a dream last night that one day you're all going to bow down to me. Big brothers don't like to hear that very much. See, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And Jacob put a coat of many colors on him to show all the other brothers, all his other sons, who his favorite son was. So I kind of put the blame on dad. And so he would take the ten sons and they would work out in the field, but his youngest son at the time, he could just drive around with him in the pickup truck, take a look at things. You see the calloused hands of the older brothers and the soft hands, like the hands of a pastor for a little, poor little Joseph. And so one day he comes out to just go and check on his older brothers so he could give a report back to dad, so he could tattle on his older brothers. And the ten older brothers finally said, let's get rid of this bum. Let's kill him. They grab him. They throw him in a pit. The fourth oldest Judah says, we can't kill him. And he goes off for a while. Then they see an entourage of slave owners that are heading toward Egypt. They take their brother. They throw him into slavery for a couple pieces of silver. Which, by the way, sidebar, is a reminder that a favorite son in the future will also be sold for a couple pieces of silver. And Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. And then... The older brothers, they rip up the coat of many colors, they put the blood of a goat all over it, and they lay it before their dad, and they say, it appears as though a wild animal has destroyed your favorite son. Dad has to live with that. And those ten brothers have to live with the lie. Until a great famine hits all of the land. Nothing is growing. They've lost their water. They've lost their food. They're just on their last couple of meals. And Jacob goes to his sons and he says, I hear that Egypt is the only place in the world that has been reserving food, almost as if they knew that this was going to come. Head down to Egypt and go buy some food. The brothers don't want to go there because they know what's down in Egypt. And so they kind of drag their heels. Dad says, get up and ride. Go get some food. And so they make their way toward Egypt. And when they reach Pharaoh's palace, they stand there, and little do they know that for the last 13 years, God has been doing something miraculous with their youngest brother, Joseph. See, for the last 13 years, Joseph starts off as a slave, but eventually he works for the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar sees Joseph, and he sees that everything Joseph touches turns into gold. So he says, I'm going to put you in charge of everything that I have. But there's a problem, see? Potiphar's wife has also taken an interest in this young, strapping Hebrew boy named Joseph. She says, come to bed with me. He says, nope, I fear God. And he runs in the opposite direction. She grabs his cloak. He lets it go. He keeps running. And then she screams out and she says, Joseph tried to rape me and here's the coat to prove it. 
Sidebar, I just noticed this week, this is the second time a coat has gotten Joseph into trouble. My guess, this is just according to Justin, he never wore a coat again. That's just my guess. Sidebar. So anyway, he's thrown into prison. And there he stays for two years. The jailer takes interest in him because, again, everything Joseph touches turns to gold. And there he also has many dreams and he interprets dreams. Another gift that God has given him. Two years pass. And then... Pharaoh has an incredibly dreadful dream. He wakes up in his chamber in a nervous sweat, and his attendants come running in. They say, oh, Pharaoh, great king, what's going on? He says, I just had the craziest dream. What is it? There I was looking at the Nile River. It was flowing. It was plentiful. It was pouring out over the sides, and there from the Nile came seven fat cows, fatter than I've ever seen before, and they start grazing in the field. That sounds great. Yeah, but something else happened. Then seven sickly cows, bony and gruesome and gross beyond what I've ever seen before, they come out of the Nile River and they don't graze in the field. They eat the fat cows. Then what happened? Well, even after they ate the fat cows, they didn't get any more fat themselves. They stayed gangly and sickly and gross. Then what? I don't know. I woke up. And so Pharaoh, he takes all of his chosen officials. They come in and they try to interpret the dream, but no one is found to be able to do it. And so Pharaoh is angry and frustrated. He says, is there anyone in Egypt, indeed anyone in the whole world who can interpret this dream for me? And then Pharaoh's cupbearer, he says, "Uh, oh king, Pharaoh, you remember when I did something just a little bit wrong and you threw me in prison? Well, there I met a guy named Joseph. He's in cell block 49. He's in your prison right now. He's good with dreams. So they go and they get Joseph. Joseph, he gets a haircut. He comes before the Pharaoh and he says, lay your dream on me. Pharaoh says, I've been told you're good with dreams. He said, nope, but my God is. You got to know where this good thing comes from, but lay it on me. He tells him the dream, and Joseph interprets it. He says, the seven years, or the seven healthy cows represent seven years of abundance. In those seven years, you will become more prosperous than any other pharaoh in human history. And Pharaoh says, I like that, fat cows. But immediately after that will be seven years of famine, far worse than the world has ever known or will ever know. Pharaoh says, what do I do? He says, what you should do is take a fifth of everything that you glean in the seven healthy years of abundance and stockpile it so that in the seven years of famine, you will be prepared. And not only that, everyone in Egypt and in the entire known world, they will come to you asking for food and they will sell you their land, their deed, their title, their crops, their animals, their livestock, the clothes on their back in order to get your food and you will become even more rich. And Pharaoh says, I like this guy. I'm putting you in charge of everything. You'll still have to report to me, of course, but everything else is under your command. And on this one day, these 10 brothers, they come into Pharaoh's court and they bow down before none other than Joseph. Just like he had predicted. And Joseph, he takes off his turban and he says, It's me. And they go, we're dead. He says, no. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. 
go and get your father and my father. Go get your family and come back to the land of Egypt. And so that's where the story begins. And then we pick up here at Genesis chapter 47. If you have your Bible, go there with me. Genesis 47, verse 1 to 6. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in, what's the word? Goshen. They're now in the land of Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability like you, put them in charge of all my livestock. That line is important. If there are any more like you, Joseph, put them in charge of everything that I have. I have seen what God can do through you. So if there's anyone else with gifts and abilities like you, put them in charge of all my stuff. And look again at verse 11 of chapter 47. It says this, So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them prosperity in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had directed Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Flip the page three chapters to Genesis chapter 50 verse 24. It says this, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he had promised. Circle, highlight, underline. On oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must also carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Turn the page. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And the story of Exodus begins. For 400 years, this people group multiplies, it doubles every 25 to 30 years so that within 400 years, this tiny group of 70 becomes a nation of more than 1 million people. And by the time they leave Egypt one generation later, 2 million people. And now the camera sets over the land of Goshen and you see that the people of Israel are living in the best of the land. The same land that Pharaoh 400 years earlier had blessed them with and said, come live in the best of the land. Because of your little brother Joseph, we not only survived in the midst of the worst famine the world has ever seen, we thrived in the midst of it. Come with your families, we will give you the best of the land. But then by verse 8, everything begins to change. Take a look with me. 
Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, circle, highlight, underline, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join with our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pythium and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. In their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You know, I find this somewhat ironic that we see that Pharaoh 400 years ago and the people of Egypt, they repeatedly said to the Israelites, you can have the best of the land. Come live in the best of the land. We want to give you the best of the land. In the very same place, this land that gave them hope and security and life and fertility, the very same thing that 400 years of putting their trust in is now the very same thing that has enslaved them. And so for the time that we have remaining this morning, here's what I want to do for us. I want to lay out for you some of the lessons that we can learn from Israel and its time in Egypt. And not only that, it serves as kind of a foundation for the things that we're going to learn in this series. What are the major themes that we're going to hear time and time and time again? Let's just review four of them very quickly. Here's the first one that I want to just lay upon your heart this morning. Don't put your hope in the things that you have, but in whose you are. Don't put your hope in the things that you have, but in whose you are. This can't be overstated. I have seen this so often as a pastor. You begin to place your value, your worth, your hope in things that can't sustain your hope, in your career in your influence, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your RSP, in your field, in your friendships, whatever you have as that area of your life that you have just invested so much hope in that unfortunately it can never satisfy your soul. So one of two things will happen. Number one, you'll lose those things and you'll begin to become angry with God that those things would be taken away. Or number two, and I find this oftentimes even worse, you will gain more and more and more, and then you will further put trust in God's created things rather than in the creator himself. And the things that you accumulate will begin to destroy your life. They will begin to own you and not you owning them. Either way, we have a lesson to learn. And here's Israel, they're living in the best of the land, but now the land is enslaving them. By the way, do you know what the word Goshen means? It means to draw near. Now here's the question, draw near to what? Are they drawing near to the blessing? Or are they drawing near to the source of the blessing? Do you see the difference? And the same question 
is laid out before you because there's nothing new under the sun. Yes, this is the story of Exodus that occurred 3,500 years ago, but it's also the story of us. And so the question that I want to lay out before you this morning is the same one. What are you drawing near to, Gateway? What are you drawing near to? And I don't want to give away the ending, but I'm going to. Do you know where this story is going to go? Eventually, we're going to hear it. Moses is going to say, let my people go. And then we're going to witness the ten plagues. We're going to witness the parting of the Red Sea. The people of Israel walking through on dry ground. Heading out into the wilderness for a season of learning. There they'll be for 40 years. Then they'll enter into the land of promise. And when they get to the land of promise, they'll make a promise to God. They'll say, we will worship you here. And we will not put our trust in princes or in the things that we accumulate, and what do they do? They Goshen the land. They put their trust in the land. So much so that after a very short season, they're no longer worshiping God. They're worshiping false idols, and they're putting their trust in stuff that God has made good, as opposed to the creator himself. They're drawing near to the land, not to the source of the land, to the created things, not to the creator of those things. And they go back out into the wilderness again. Back to Genesis chapter 3 all over again. And on and on the cycle ensues. All the way up to today. The same story over and over again, people. Do you know what our story is? It's just like this one. That God says, I have made a way for you. I want to bring you into the land of promise. Into right relationship with me. We enter into the land of promise. There we can abide with God. But then we put our trust in princes principalities, the the stuff that we accumulate over time, and we begin to worship the things that God has made good as opposed to the creator himself. And so God says, here's the fundamental message that you have to see. The number one message that we're going to learn in this book is don't put your hope in the things that you have. That can't sustain your hope. Put your hope in whose you are. And very much tied to that, we see the very next verse that says, there's a new pharaoh in town who doesn't know Joseph. And I always find that odd. How is it possible that he doesn't know who Joseph is? How is it possible that he has forgotten his salvation? That Joseph, through the power of God, reveals what is about to happen, and without the action steps that Joseph has laid before them, Egypt would have laid waste, and it would have ceased to exist. How is it possible that in 400 short years, he doesn't even know who Joseph is? He doesn't even know where his salvation has come from. But then it dawns on me, it's the same story for us. How often do we forget our salvation? How prone am I to do the same thing? And then we realize that, the way, that where the story is going, we realize that Exodus is just a subplot to a far greater story. That one day, after 400 years of silence, a man named Jesus, a choice son, will come into the world and there he will instruct the people of God to take his blood the blood of the lamb, and to put it upon the doorposts of their heart so that when the just judgment of God comes, it won't fall on their head, it will fall on him. He says, put your trust in me. And so here's the second point I want to lay out before you. Don't forget your salvation. Don't forget your salvation. 
The same story is true of Pharaoh when he hardens his heart as it is with Israel, as it is with us. All of our pontificating and drawing near to the land as opposed to the source of the land, all of it comes from one thing, our inability to remember our Savior. Our inability to remember our salvation and where it comes from. And when I live in a land of plenty, and I can turn on a tap and there's clean potable water, and the food is stocked in the fridge, and the hospitals are fully functioning, and the grocery stores are full, and money is in the bank, oh, how easy it is for us to draw near to the land and not to the source of all that God has made good. And God is begging us, pleading with us to recognize that he is the source of all that is good. He is the only hope that can sustain you Everything else will leave you dry and disappointed and sad, but he will give you life. And on some days, I will bow my head in shame, recognizing once again that through my actions, I have forgotten my salvation. I've put my trust in stuff and not in the source of all that is good. God says, draw near to me. Draw near to me. When you enjoy a good meal, a good glass of wine, and good company, it is meant to be a gateway into seeing God for who he is, the source of all of our provisions, the one who tenderly cares for his sheep. And that leads to number three. Don't forget how your salvation comes. Don't forget how your salvation comes. I think this is perhaps the most important theme in the book of Exodus. And the best way we're going to see that is when we get to the 10th plague. Let me outline it for you today because I want you to have it fresh in your mind as we go through this series. The 10th plague is the plague of the firstborn where the angel of death comes and he kills the firstborn of every household. Now here's what we have to understand. The instruction of God is he tells them to take a hyssop branch, to pour it in the blood of the lamb and to write it on the doorposts of their homes. Which means their salvation is not tied to their ethnicity, their tribe, their race, or their moral ambitions. It is exclusively tied to whether or not any person has the blood of the lamb on their door. So here's what it looks like. If Egypt, any Egyptian, had the blood of the lamb on their door, the angel of death would pass over. If any Israelite had the blood of the lamb on the door, it would pass over. If any Egyptian did not have the blood of the lamb, it would go in. If any Israelite did not have the blood of the lamb, it would go in. The only way that they can be saved from the angel of death is through the blood of the Lamb. And then comes along Jesus when he meets John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we're about to read. And we have to see it right on the front end as we walk through this book. And the fourth and final one I want to leave you with today is don't forget that you are called to be a living water in an otherwise barren land. That was the instruction of the people of Israel. Why did God leave them in a place called Egypt? See, Egyptians, for everything that they were, they were influencers. Like, 
I just had the opportunity to go to Egypt and to see the pyramids. A lot of people are asking the question, how did they build the pyramids? But maybe an equally important question is, why did they build them? One thing we know about ancient civilizations, especially ancient Egyptians, is they were so longing to influence the world. And this is the incubator, the greenhouse, upon which the people of Israel are witnessing something. And God says to them and to us, I'm calling you to be influencers in the world. Not for yourself, not for your own military might, but so that others might see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus gathers his disciples and everyone who's listening, and he says this, I want you to be like salt in a world that needs flavor. I want you to be a city on a hill. I want you to be a light that shines brightly. I want everyone to see your good deeds, but when they see them, they won't glorify you. They won't say, wow, what an incredible civilization. They'll glorify God and they'll see him for who he truly is. That's the desire of God. Each and every one of us plays a part. Do you know what it's like? It's like a flowing river in the middle of an otherwise barren wasteland. A wellspring of water that pours over, seeps over the sides, and little fingers spread across the valley below, nourishing the valley and bringing forth great fertility. You are called to be that in an otherwise barren land. And Gateway, I I just want to share with you that I'm, I'm so proud to be one of your pastors I have seen the way in which you have done this, the way that you have cared so deeply for your community, not just in the last six and a half months, but the last number of years. Do you know that because of your generosity, you've helped raise more than a million dollars for flood response just through Gateway? Do you know that when the mayor was asked by our premier, hey, we're coming down to Sumas Prairie for the first time, we just want to go and visit someone who's making a difference, where do we go? Without question, he said, you got to go to Gateway. Do you know that because of your generosity, because of the way that you have stepped in, we have the opportunity almost daily to have conversations with people who ask questions like, why are you doing this? We love those questions. Thank you for being a wellspring of living water in an otherwise barren land. Thank you for being help and hope to those who need it so desperately. That is our calling. That is why we exist, so that we would be influencers and others would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That others would know the hope, the firm foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, one who draws near to us, one who goshens us. And we ask, Lord, that we in response would would draw near to you, not to the stuff that you've given us, that can't satisfy our soul, but that we would draw near to you that we would enjoy you. And as we see this broken world and all of the sickness 
and famine and toil and sword, that we would be quick to grieve and quick to step in and to be help and hope to those who need it. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would equip us for every good task. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. We ask that we would stand on that firm foundation from day to day, implant that hope in us, Lord. May we not just know it, may we not just hear it, but may we be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.